What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I am so excited today to be interviewing Andrew Marinus, the special projects manager at Vanderbilt Athletics, which includes the Sports and Society Initiative, a big, big fan of that initiative we are here at Burn It All Down, and the author of three books on sports and social justice, including the latest, which is Singled Out, The True Story of Glenn Burke. That has just come out this month at Philomel Books, uh, but really available everywhere. I got mine digitally, actually, so so easy to get. You should definitely go out um, and get it as soon as possible because it's fantastic, and we're going to talk about it right now. Um, Andrew, a lot of what you've done in this book is to try to keep a really clear narrative of Glenn Burke and his life while also providing a lot of context for the gay rights movement in the 1970s and the culture of baseball, drug culture. It takes us through, you know, some really difficult times in, um, particularly in California um, during the 1970s and 80s for African-Americans, um, HIV crisis. It, it's, it's really um, a tumultuous time. Why did you think Glenn Burke's story was the right one to to pull these these things together. Thank you, Brenda. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of your show and was so excited to meet all of you when you came to Nashville last year. Um, but yeah, this book was uh, a labor of love for me as all of my books have been and my uh, niche that I'm trying to carve out is writing books that are sports, nonfiction, history with a social justice uh, message to them, uh, both for young readers and for adults. Um, I'm a huge baseball fan. Baseball has always been my sport. I was born in 1970, so the 70s are the first decade, you know, that I remember as a baseball fan and just as a kid, you know. Um, and so in Glenn's story, like you said, I, I saw an opportunity to tell a relatively unknown baseball story, you know, the story of the first openly gay Major League Baseball player, but that that story offered a, a chance to tell a bigger picture story, you know, about the gay rights movement, especially uh, during that decade and the and the backlash to it. And, you know, I think one thing that makes the book uh, relevant, someone was asking about this yesterday, is a lot of the same issues that Glenn was facing back then in the 1970s, you know, we're still dealing with uh, today, uh, whether it relates to sports and the fact that we really haven't had many if any, openly gay male athletes uh, in the major sports in the U.S. You know, we've seen a little bit of a different story in women's sports, but also just, um, you know, in this polarized country that we live in, like you can point to a lot of advancements made uh, in LGBTQ areas, but you can also see incredible backlash. You know, here in Tennessee, where I live, there's a bill in the legislature that is passed out of committee that would ban books in schools that deal with LGBTQ characters or themes, you know, which is just um, disgusting. Uh, we had the 
a slate of anti-transgender uh, athlete bills in state houses around the country. That's making it through uh, here in Tennessee also. And so I think to have the chance to write a story um, about a gay baseball player really opens up that discussion, maybe for people that wouldn't ordinarily even want to engage in it. And though, like you said, this is a book that everyone can read and I enjoyed it immensely, the, it is targeted to a young adult audience, um, which is really important probably to given what you're talking about exactly. Like that's an audience you really want to grasp. So um, can you tell us a little bit about Glenn Burke then and and why it was it was so powerful as a story for you? Yeah. Um, well, Glenn is a guy that grew up in the Bay Area, East Bay, uh, Oakland and, and Berkeley. He was an outstanding basketball player. Uh, first of all, he always considered himself more of a basketball player than a baseball player. Rupert Jones, you know, who went on to the major leagues, also attended Berkeley High, as Glenn did. And Rupert told me that Glenn Burke was the best athlete that he ever saw. You know, and I think that in the 1970s, when Glenn's making his way through the, the minor leagues, the, the stereotypes uh, about gay men in the United States, no one would say that they would never suspect that the best athlete that they ever saw was gay, right? So that's one interesting aspect of his story. Um, he's drafted by the Dodgers. He works his way up through the Dodgers minor league system. There's this whole thing about the, the Dodger way, you know, of doing things passed down from LA all the way through the minor league system. It's kind of a conservative, you know, promoting this wholesome all-American image in the, in the organization. And Glenn is rebelling against that constantly, not just related to his sexuality, but just not listening to coaches, you know, the type of guy that'll steal third base with two outs when his third base coach will go nuts when he's um, called up to the major leagues and he's playing his last minor league game and he knows he's uh, about to head up to LA. The last out of the game is a fly ball hit his direction in the outfield. He switches the glove from his left hand to his right hand, catches it with the wrong hand and runs back in the dugout and tells his manager, now you'll have something to remember me by, you know, so he's kind of a, a character uh, in the, in the Dodger system before that everyone even knows that he's, that he's gay, you know, and he's kind of looked at differently. He doesn't quite fit the mold. Um, his teammates in the minor leagues are starting to suspect uh, that he's gay when he has, you know, uh, boyfriends arriving from, from California or he's not going out to the same bars as the rest of the guys. Uh, they'll try to introduce him to women and he'll say, oh, I've got to go shopping. And it's 1130 at night, you know, and his teammates are like, where are you going to go shopping now? And so it becomes kind of an open secret uh, within the Dodger organization and eventually a not so open secret and he's he's traded we can talk more about that story but the dodgers once management finds out that he's gay they want nothing to do with him and it has a particular twist to it because of the history of tommy lasorda and him as a figure in that period and also his son um do you want to talk a little bit about that sure so tommy lasorda is such a um, iconic figure in baseball and the dodger organization larger than life figure in some ways, I think uh, a lot of myth and, and PR to Tommy Lasorda's image as well. Um, but Tommy's son, Tommy Jr. was gay. Uh, his nickname was Spunky Lasorda. Uh, Tommy Sr. never publicly acknowledged that about his son, even though everyone knew it. When, when Lasorda Jr. died of AIDS, uh, Tommy Sr. never acknowledged that that was even the actual cause of death. Uh, but Glenn Burke and Tommy Jr. became friends. Um, they both were into disco music. You know, they both uh, were into clothes. Tommy Jr. was a tailor. Uh, he would come on a lot of road trips. 
they would spend time together on these trips. And at one point they hatched this plan that they would show up at Lasorda Senior's house as if they were on a date, you know, um, with uh, Spunky dressed in pigtails. And they said if they had gone through with this, that when they knocked on the door, uh, Lasorda would have would have shot them and then had a heart attack, you know. And so they enjoyed uh, kind of needling him in that way. But, you know, this, there's some funny aspects to that story, but really it, it shows the, the depth of homophobia in Major League Baseball at that time. Glenn starts two games in the playoffs in 1977. He starts game one of the World Series, and he's been called the next, the potential of the next Willie Mays by Junior Gilliam, a respected Dodger coach. And so after that 77 season where Glenn's had a great rookie year, you know, he's been a key member of a real veteran team, a successful team. Al Campanis, the general manager, schedules a meeting with Glenn in the offseason. Glenn thinks it's to talk about his role on the team for the next year. Instead, it's, a, it's essentially a bribe. And they say, Glenn, we'd like you to get married. And Glenn says, to a woman? And when Cam, Campanis says yes, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. They offer him $75,000, which is a lot now. This is supposedly for a honeymoon. You could go on a pretty good honeymoon for $75,000, let alone in 1977. And so it really, that's um, a bribe uh, that they offer Glenn to cover up uh, the fact that he's gay. And when Glenn doesn't go along with it, uh, he knows his days with the Dodgers are numbered and he's traded early in the 78 season. And how do you think then, so there's the one thing with the bribe, which is a real clear way in which we can understand that he is being um, discriminated against on the on the basis of his sexuality. But what, what other ways um, is baseball really shutting the doors to him? Uh, I think you could say that, I mean, this kind of gets at a question that a lot of people ask when they look at his statistics. You know, um, Glenn didn't put up great numbers during his stint in the major leagues. Yet, I don't think it's fair to say that he played his way out of the game. You know, that's what some critics will say. Oh, it wasn't that he was gay, that he couldn't pursue his passion as a baseball player. He had his chance and he just didn't make it. Well, here's a guy who hit over 300 five times in the minor leagues. He set stolen base records at two levels of the minor leagues. As a rookie, he's playing significant time uh, in the postseason. Um, and yet he's constantly looking over his shoulder. You know, um, his teammates, though largely supportive, are also, uh, there's elements or pockets of teammates that aren't, you know, that are making jokes, uh, homophobic jokes in, in the clubhouse about him. Uh, obviously his manager didn't want him there. And so baseball being such a, a mental game, I guess you could call these almost microaggressions that he's facing on a, a daily basis that, um, you can't become the very best player you can be when you feel that lack of uh, support around you. When he's traded to the A's, he's hoping that this is a chance for a rebirth. This is where he's grown up. Billy Martin's named the manager of the Oakland A's. They, he's a Berkeley High graduate also. And Billy Martin says he's not going to let a gay player, quote unquote, contaminate his team. You know, he introduces Glenn as, uh, you know, the F word uh, on the team. Sends him to the minor leagues. Glenn knows he's never going to get a shot to, to be called back up. To the A. So you can point to these specific events like the Dodgers trading him, Billy Martin sending him down as uh, obvious examples of homophobia. But it was that general day to day lack of support from the people around him, not necessarily told directly that you're not welcome here, but feeling it every day that has, I think, a much more profound impact on him. And that's something that, you know, it's an illustration of what uh, closeted gay people are having to deal with every day, you know, uh, whether they're baseball players or not. 
Right. I mean, one of the fascinating things about him is it's really clear he has tremendous talent and athleticism, but he almost like most of us, if we if we had that, might imagine really being singularly dedicated <laughs> to, you know, playing professional sports. And yet he has a really ambivalent relationship um, with baseball. He goes in and out. I mean, it's something you would never really see today, I don't feel like. Um, he just sometimes decides that he's going to go play basketball again and go back to college. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, what do you think that tells us about the culture of baseball in the 1970s and, and 80s, early 80s as well? Yeah, Glenn's a complex person. You know, he doesn't always make the decisions that you would think are the right decisions to make, you know, but that just makes him human. Um, you're right, he, he did quit the A's at one point and then come back, but that was because of the atmosphere in the clubhouse where he felt he wasn't welcome, especially with his second team, where guys hadn't gone through the minor leagues with him. They didn't have that history of friendship. At one point, while he's in the Dodgers system, he starts playing basketball at Nevada Reno, which actually was a pretty innovative thing. So not only was Glenn the first openly gay player, he was the first uh, minor league baseball player to also play college basketball. At the same time, when the NCAA changed its rules in the 70s, he was the first major league player to wear Nikes in a game. So, you know, he was someone that did things differently. And you can see the benefit of having someone who does things differently in an organization. But in terms of what that says about uh, baseball, I mean, it's such a conservative sport. I think it, it always has been. And, and one thing that Glenn wasn't even able to um, take advantage of, there were more black players in the major leagues then than there are now. Um, I think literally, maybe certainly proportionally, you know, there's expansion teams, but um, Glenn wasn't even able to fully take advantage of that social network of, of other black ball players. I mean, Dusty Baker was a key leader on those Dodgers team. When I interviewed him, he talked about the role that Hank Aaron had played in Dusty's life when he was a young player with the Braves, about how um, guys from different teams, black players would get together uh, for lunch, you know, before games or sort of share and compare notes about where are the safe places to go, especially as they're coming up through the minor leagues and they're playing in the South and the Midwest. And so this was an important um, sort of safety net for black ball players. Glenn wasn't able to take full advantage of that either because he was gay. He didn't want to go to the same clubs as they did. He couldn't share exactly what was on his mind and ask for support because he wasn't sure what the reaction would be uh, if these guys found out that he was gay. And so, you know, he, he sort of was facing uh, so many obstacles that no one was aware of. And even in cases where he might have had some friendships, uh, he wasn't able to fully pursue them. That's one of the really fascinating and, and tragic parts of the book. Um, and then at the same time, it seems that many in his gay circle didn't seem to fully grasp either the racial um, discrimination that he may have felt, but also baseball, <laughs> didn't, his, the precarity of his job and what it required. Yeah, he had a lover named Michael Smith that was um, interested in Glenn coming out for political and uh, attention type of reasons. And Glenn always felt that he had an off-again, on-again relationship with Michael. He felt like he was being used uh, in certain ways, and he was taken advantage of financially. Um, Michael would uh, see Glenn playing in the World Series. You know, he's sitting right behind home plate and would start shouting out in the crowd, you know, about his relationship with Glenn. Glenn had some other friends there that knew that, that this wasn't a good thing for Glenn. You know, you can't let this out right now. Um, and they would tell Michael to shut up. Uh, Michael Smith shows up at a minor league game with a busload 
of gay men from San Francisco. And Glenn is um, not sure how to handle that either. You know, uh, that it, it was clear uh, that these were his friends, you know, and, and his lover. And he was concerned that if this got out in that franchise, that he would lose his spot in the major leagues. Finally, after Glenn, uh, you know, is driven from the game, it's two years later in 1982 when he really comes out to the world through an article in Inside Sports Magazine and a Today Show interview. And it's Michael Smith who is behind that Inside Sports Magazine article. He writes it and tells Glenn that they'll split the money that he's receiving for writing this money for the article and never shares the money with him. You know, and so uh, it's interesting thinking about now um, why haven't any other Major League Baseball players come out as active players? And here's an example you can see of just what a precarious idea that is and what all the different factors that go into it, what different motivations people have for wanting you to come out. Uh, but Glenn was really the only one that understood that as good of a story this might be, you know, as beneficial as it might be for other, especially young people to see this example of a gay player, that it might cost him his career. And it did cost him his career. And so he was always hesitant to do it. And I think it's such an important reminder because there's mounting pressure on players who are very visible athletes. When is the next one going to come? When is the next one going to come? And I think the story is probably very important for people to read and understand that being yanked out into the open with your sexuality is not just, you know, it's not just for everyone. <laughs> That's not something we can demand of, of every person. Right. You know, every um, LGBTQ person I interviewed for this book talked so much about how that decision to come out has to be a very personal choice. You know, it's not anyone else's choice to make. Um, when is the right time? What's the right way to do it? For all sorts of reasons. I interviewed Billy Bean, who's the second uh, openly gay Major League Baseball player to come out again after his playing days, who's now a vice president with Major League Baseball. You just talked about the, the, the pressures, the short window that you have as a professional athlete, any athlete, you know, and the incredible money that is there that can be life changing, not just for the athlete themselves, but for generations possibly, you know. And so not knowing what the reaction will be from your teammates, from your manager, from the general manager, from the owner, the fans in the particular city that you happen to play in, that there's a lot of those factors that might prevent someone uh, from coming out. It just might seem not worth it. You know, just wait a couple of years, you'll be done with the game. If you choose to do it, then, you know, it could be uh, perceived as safer in a lot of ways. On the other hand, I think that someone were Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
or do it, I think that they would be, uh, again, talk about polarization. I think at, at once they would probably be the most popular player in Major League Baseball and the most abused player in Major League Baseball, especially thinking about social media and fans at the ballpark. But I wouldn't be surprised if they had the best-selling jersey, you know, uh, just like Colin Kaepernick, blackballed from the game, but is also immensely popular at the same time. I think you'd see the same type of polarization. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit BetterHelp.com slash burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. So in essence, a lot of the book, it starts out by laying a foundation so right now we're talking about his kind of peak and beginning of his decline in in baseball, but the beginning of the book really anchors him in a family history that stays with him, uh, particularly his sister, through his his death. Um, do you do you want to describe a little bit about what that tells us? Why you spent so much time on on that? Yeah, well, I, I felt like it was important to build that family history in the beginning of the book because, like you said, it, it becomes so important at the end, um, particularly his relationship with his sister, Lutha. Uh, when Glenn is dying of AIDS in the mid-90s, he's living homeless on the streets of San Francisco, you know, um, and it's his sister, Lutha, that finally takes him in and nurses him and loves him and rubs his feet and sings songs with him and tells stories about their childhood together. And so he is able to die uh, with some measure of peace, thanks to his sister, Lutha, um, who was described to me as an angel before I met her and interviewed her and certainly lived up to that, uh, just in my experience with her. And she, you know, kind of played that role with her brother, Glenn. But 
growing up in Oakland and Berkeley, Glenn was part of a really close family, primarily women. Uh, his mom, his dad had left the family. Um, he had a number of older sisters who were kind of protectors of Glenn. Um, Lutha was there the day that Glenn was drafted by the Dodgers. He was playing basketball at the park and she came to tell him the Dodgers were there to see him. And he said, I don't want to play for the Dodgers. You know, I, we live in the Bay Area. We're Giants fans in this family, you know. And finally, she's able to bring him back home. And he signs that contract. And, you know, with so many uh, gay men of the 1970s, they were essentially driven out of their families. You know, and Glenn's living in the Castro district of San Francisco, surrounded by thousands of men who have come from other parts of the country where they were, you know, disowned, essentially, by their families. And so um, to show that Glenn did have that strong uh, love from his family that was always there, I thought was an important aspect of his life. And yet he wasn't always willing to count on that family. You know, there were times where um, he's really struggling post-baseball. What, what's he going to do with his life? You, you mentioned earlier that he was someone that really put all of his eggs in the sports basket. You know, it's kind of a cautionary tale in that regard. He, his identity was completely as a basketball player, as a baseball player, when he wasn't able to pursue that anymore, really had no idea what he wanted to do with his life. And he's really struggling, but doesn't want to be a burden on his family. And so that's why uh, a big reason why he ends up experiencing homelessness for such long stretches in his life before finally Luther finds out and takes him back in. Do you think for people reading this story, what would you like us to think about our responsibility for, for people, maybe, maybe not just athletes, <laughs> But, um, you know, yeah. the homelessness in the midst of, you know, crack cocaine epidemic, um, you know, how did it, what, what would you want the takeaway for a young adult reading this to be at that point as they're watching the unraveling and the AIDS crisis happen? It's a re really sad part of the story. And as a reader, you're really affected. Yeah, I mean, I think with all three of my books, um, the, the takeaway I hope is for people to actually do something. Um, you know, a book about Perry Wallace, he talked about the bystanders that surrounded him. It was actually the hardest part of his experience as the first black player in the SEC. It wasn't going down to Mississippi where he thought he might get shot and killed in a basketball game, which imagine saying that wasn't the toughest part of your experience. He said it was on his own campus here at Vanderbilt where he was ignored and isolated and lonely for four years, you know, by, by bystanders who would say, well, I wasn't the one calling him the N word. And I wasn't the one that, uh, kicked him out of a church because he was black. I wasn't the one throwing stones at him. You know, I, I didn't do anything. That's true. They didn't do anything, you know, um, to help him either. Uh, with the second book, which takes place in uh, 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany, uh, the message of that book comes from Elie Wiesel, who said he swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endured suffering and humiliation. You know, that neutrality is always on the side of the oppressor, never the oppressed. And so he talked again about the danger of, of neutrality, you know, and I think that you can see that in Glenn Burke's story also, where it's not just the Tommy Lasorda's or Al Campanis's or Billy Martin's of the world and the people who are doing obviously homophobic things that are detrimental to Glenn. It's people that walk by a homeless person on the street, right? You know, it, it's people that are telling those uh, jokes in the locker room, you know, um, it's people who aren't standing up for someone who's different. That's really what it gets down to, uh, is to keep an eye out for those types of people and actually do something to, to help their lives. So in the aftermath of Glenn's death, um, 
which we should say is from complications due to AIDS um, in the mid-90s, 1995. Do you see Major League Baseball having changed? Do you, do you see a difference today? I don't think you could say you see a difference uh, too much. I mean, there's not a visible change uh, in terms of there being 10 out gay baseball players in the major leagues. I think having Billy Bean as part of the administration at Major League Baseball is important. I thought that uh, when Tom Brenneman made the homophobic remarks on the air during the Reds game last year, there were players like Amir Garrett and others that spoke out, Sean Doolittle, um, on Twitter that night, you know, and said that this is unacceptable. And I don't know that we've ever seen Major League Baseball players make any sort of comments like that before. So I think that there are signs that attitudes might be changing in clubhouses. I interviewed Tony Kemp, who now plays for the Oakland A's, and we talked about this. And he said, you know, in his teams he's been on, he, he felt like a gay player would be welcome, you know, if, if they came out. Interviewed Tim Corbin, who's the coach of the Vanderbilt baseball team here, number one team in the country. He said he would celebrate a gay player on his team. So, you know, maybe just because culturally things are changing, that's making its way into clubhouses also. I think the lesson that I'm curious to see is uh, something that goes back to Perry Wallace again. You know, when he was coming along in the 1960s at Vanderbilt and telling the truth about the racism he was encountering, people didn't want to hear it. You know, he gave a, a landmark interview to the paper the day after his last game and people canceled their subscriptions to the newspaper. They canceled their season tickets. They drove him out of town. It wasn't until 40 years later that they were listening to the same things he was saying and finally wanted to hear it and were willing to hear it and uh, honored Perry, loved Perry the way they should have all along. And so I asked Perry about that phenomenon and he said, well, reconciliation without the truth is just acting. You know, and a lot of times uh, sports organizations or universities, companies, families, when I put this photo op out there, you know, and say, well, look at us, things are better now, they've changed. Um, but have they really dealt with the truth of how they got into that situation in the first place? If they haven't, that moment of reconciliation is just for show, it's just acting. If the truth is present, then it's for real. So Glenn Burke, I think, is kind of in the zeitgeist right now. You know, even aside from my book, he's being talked about again. MLB tweeted about him last year during Pride Month. Um, mm -hmm. Oakland A's put out a video about him just a couple uh, weeks ago. But in both cases, kind of surface level, you know, the here is the first openly gay player. He invented the high five, but not really dealing with any of the real issues that were present. And so if Glenn is sort of coming back and people are talking about him again and these franchises want to uh, acknowledge that they were part of history. Well, let's make sure that the whole story is part of that so that we can learn from it and not just celebrate the trivia uh, about Glenn, but really get into the, the, the depth of his story so that it can be easier uh, for gay players that come along now and in the future. This question comes from my co-hosts and they wanted to know um, if any one particular interview has stuck with you that you just can't get out of your head? Huh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> They're much better interviewers. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think there were two interviews that have stuck with me. Um, well, let me say three. They're not necessarily, they were the most profound, but they were the most interesting interviews. Um, the first one was, was profound, I would say. It was Dusty Baker. Everybody told me how great Dusty Baker is, and I had been trying to get in touch with him find a time where we could talk and it kept getting canceled or just wasn't going to work out. And then finally he told me he was in Asheville, North Carolina to scout a game for the Giants just before he was Astros manager. 
and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. So that's only about like a four, four and a half hour drive. So I just got in the car and drove over there and met him and uh, spent about three hours with him after he had told me he had an hour, you know, and so he just kept going and uh, he loved Glenn, you know, and was distraught when Glenn was traded from the Dodgers. He was really um, open and honest about what it was like in that clubhouse, how popular Glenn was, how devastating it was when he was traded, seeing Glenn later when he when Dusty became manager of the Giants and Glenn's dying of AIDS. And that was what a profound that scene was for Dusty. So that was cool. I also was in the Oakland A's clubhouse interviewing their clubhouse manager, Steve Vucinich, who's been there for, since Glenn was a player. And he said, well, you know about Glenn being the first to wear Nikes, right? And I was like, no, I've never heard that before. And he hooked me up with uh, Bill Frechette, who was a, a vendor at Dodger Stadium, also working at a shoe store in Santa Monica back in the 70s, who goes on to become the top baseball executive at Nike, thanks to a relationship with Glenn Burke. He met him at the stadium as a vendor, brought Glenn down to the store and gave him some shoes. Glenn liked them. They were soccer shoes for artificial turf. Glenn dyed them blue and wore them in the playoffs that year and was the first player to wear Nike. So that was just kind of a, a fun detail that I never would have heard otherwise. And then I was able to track down one of Glenn's former lovers, a guy um, who's now retired in Hawaii, named Cloyd Jenkins. And they had known each other in San Francisco. Cloyd owned a bed and breakfast outside of San Francisco. And he was able to shed a lot of light on um, Glenn's experience coming out on the Today Show and in the Inside Sports article, uh, what it was like as AIDS was arriving in San Francisco and they're just learning about this new disease and what they're seeing in that neighborhood. And so Cloyd's level of detail and being able to tie those um, stories that everybody knows about AIDS down to how did Glenn perceive it at the time was just... Uh, I couldn't have it made the book uh, so much better. And I was never knew if I would find him, you know, and finding him retired in Hawaii was a thrill when he emailed back. So um, before I let you go, I want to ask, what are you working on now? Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I'm working on a book on the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team, which played at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. It'll come out at the end of uh, next year, 2022, which will be the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Uh, and so the book tells the story of this team in the context of the women's rights movement of the 70s and of Title IX. Um, this team won the silver medal, and that was uh, an enormous accomplishment for the U.S. women's team at that time. You know, now we would be disappointed in anything but a gold, but the Soviets dominated going back to the 50s. At that time, we weren't even supposed to qualify for the Olympics. No one thought we were even going to make it to Montreal. And so this team had iconic players like uh, Nancy Lieberman and uh, Pat Head and Ann Myers, uh, coached by Billy Moore. And I've, I've finished the research. I'm outlining chapter one, hoping to finish writing chapter one this weekend. So I'm just getting started and, and can't wait for that book to come out next year. Well, we can't wait either. So you'll have to be back. Uh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank you. Andrew Marinus. Thank you once again for being on Burn It All Down. We are so excited about this work and your future work and appreciate your time and support. Oh, thank you so much, Brenda. I really admire everything that all of you do. And it's an honor to be on this show. So thank you so much.